Hey y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They had been been around the block a time or two. What's the first deal they built, I bet? No, no, you know, I think they were, the the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped up car, and he he complained that the government gave him these piece of crap, cheapo cars, and that, that were really no match. But he thought he was doing pretty good, and then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappears. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And as he said, it was a game of chicken, and I was the chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually, he was the guy who who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's steal when Junior got tangled up in a a barbed wire fence. So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast, available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Vault Podcast. Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at PolePositionMag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item backed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Hey 
Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. Presented by QWare. Maintain excellence. When we ended the year, I'll never forget sitting in the banquet, watching him on stage, and I'm just angry as could be because I'm like, I want to be there, I want to be there, I want to be there. You have a gut feeling of how good you are and how good you are at that time and how good your team is. It was like, hey, do you want to drive our car? I was like, hey, I'm really kind of enjoying a couple weekends off here and there. <laughs> the day NASCAR and all of us associated in any way with NASCAR forget its past, that's the day we don't have any future. Hello, I'm Steve Wade. And my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast presented by QWare. And Steve, before we begin, i got to ask you a question. Have you recovered from Stocks for Tots? <laughs> <laughs> How's that signing arm, buddy? I still have a few cramps there, Rick, but <laughs> it was well worth it. That was a great event, and I guess we signed pretty consistently for a couple of hours. That's that, right. That Didn't was pretty stop. cool. Yeah, Didn't it was stop. a great crowd and very enthusiastic. And I thought it was pretty cool because one of the very first people through the line had a briefcase of stuff that he wanted to get signed and everything. And he pulls out a copy of Brave in Life. And of course, I start giving you a hard time and everything. Well, you know, went through six springs there, Rick. You remember? <laughs> oh. <laughs> Okay, it's, that gonna, was it's cool. gonna be a long episode. <laughs> <laughs> and then he did something else. He did something else. And he pulled out a copy of Second to None. So go. we both signed copies of our books, How which was that? pretty cool. And then just the enthusiasm that people had. And we had several people come through the line and tell us that they really enjoyed the podcast. Yeah. And certainly yeah. there were those that might not have heard the podcast, but they certainly remembered scenes. So that was pretty gratifying. That's right. And we gave away the commemorative Darlington issues of scene and Rick and the last person came through. <laughs> We had one copy left. My stack was kind of dwindling. <laughs> yeah. And as the line kind of thinned down and everything and the end of the signing got nearer, I kind of counted people in line and I counted 14 people right. in line. And I counted the number of papers that I had. <laughs> and believe it or not, I had 14 papers. That's right. I guess that was just meant to be. Well, I'll tell you something. It was a cold, wet night, no question about it. And you have to admire the dedication of race fans, not only to battle that uh, weather, but to come out there from long distances. I mean, some yeah. from Missouri, and, yeah. and this is up in North Carolina. And they did it to get our autographs. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> you got to admire <laughs> We were the big draws at Stocks for Tots in 2009. I don't know about that. But... <laughs> Steve, this week in our first segment, <laughs> we are going to have the third and final installment of the interview that I did with Bobby Labonte. And we discussed his 2000 Winston Cup championship, his relationship with Joe Gibbs racing teammate, Tony Stewart, the decision to leave Joe Gibbs racing, and finally the latter years of his career and some racing that he did this year at Bowman, Bowman Gray, Gray Stadium. Stadium. Yes, sir. Now that's hardcore. And then in our second segment, we are going to tackle some more listener questions. Uh-oh. <laughs> and they <laughs> they kind of run the gamut. One fella asked if there were people that we just didn't like, which uh, I thought was kind of interesting. <laughs> <laughs> well. <laughs> well, let's ponder that one, shall we? Well, certainly, Steve, I don't know that we will tell everything that we know <laughs> in that one. On Patreon, we have new support from Jordan Turnage. 
And also, we have PayPal support this week from Josh Ward and Robert Laird. So, guys, thank you very much for that support. It means a lot to us. If you could possibly help us out on Patreon, do $5 a month, and you will receive a copy of the commemorative issue that we did with Darlington, and also a classic issue of Winston Cup Scene. Do $10 a month, and you will receive both of those newspapers and the Steve Wade rookie card. I think we've got three left. Three or four. Okay, good. Uh (laughs) Depending on how this goes, we may just have to dig up some more of those cards. Oh, my goodness. Now, at Stocks for Tots, you signed signed probably 10 or 15 of them. At least. One person had a set of a dozen of my (laughs) cards. I couldn't believe it. I have a feeling I'm going to be buying those on eBay. (laughs) (laughs) But seriously, help us out on Patreon, patreon.com slash the Seambot podcast. Or on PayPal, if you'd rather just do a one-time show of support, you can do that at paypal.me slash the same bought podcast. Beginning in 1996, the team made really steady improvements in the standings. 1996, you were 11th. 1997, you were 7th. 1998, you were 6th. 1999, you were 2nd. Was that kind of progress okay with you, or were you wanting to be on top right now? You know, I thought I thought for sure that um, we weren't good enough at every track, all the tracks, to be, you know, right here, right now. Um, we had work to do, and we, we I think in 98, we, we showed that. In the 99, we were definitely there. Uh, I didn't think that it was, you know, we didn't deserve it 96 or 97, 98. I thought we were, you know, going to get there. I mean, the timing worked out with probably what I thought was right, but I didn't think I should have been there before that. I think we, with what we were gaining on and what we were doing, I thought it was, you know, steadily creeping up on it was probably the, was working out. 1999, Tony Stewart moved up to Winston Cup and became your teammate. And Bobby, I got to tell you, your personalities would appear to be <laughs> almost completely opposite. And as good as he was on the racetrack, it seemed like he was always getting into some kind of controversy those first couple of years. What was your thinking during all that? Did you ever sit down with him or did you and Coach ever sit down with him or was he just going to be Tony to be Tony? So um, to speak? You know, I think that, you know, I'm, I think Tony was going to be Tony. I mean, it yeah. was it was it was obvious that way with him being hired because it was hard to get to. He was hard to get, you know. You know, if you look back at how Coach said, "Can I get your number?" and three days later I signed, you know, I'm I'm doing it. Yeah, it didn't take me months at a time. And of course, I didn't have, you know, I wasn't racing IRL. I wasn't doing this and that. So Tony was. I mean, Tony had it. He's just got a different style, and um, so. You know, as our personalities might be different in some ways, I mean, you know, I got to know him well enough that it's, I mean, what his heart is, is full of gold. And what you might see at one place is not what you see all the time. Uh, no, I didn't sit down and talk to him. You know, I mean, there was a lot of, I mean, I, I, I'm probably, uh, you know, hopefully lead by example more than, you know, telling somebody what they should be doing, shouldn't right. be doing. Right. Um, and I, I think that, um, um, you know, I think, I think Tony being Tony was, was probably good, good. It was good for us in a way because, you know, sometimes that difference is better than 
you know, when you just do the same thing over and over again. Uh, but no, I mean, as far as me, you know, I, I, I kind of welcomed the fact that I knew that this kid, you know, was going to be, you know, a star, a superstar. And you, sometimes you have to take a little bit of the, eh, a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's not something I would do. Right. But at the same time, couldn't ask for anybody for a better person, but you know, would, would I see him do things? I'd be like, well, I wouldn't do that, but that's not me. You know, <laughs> yeah, that, yeah. that he's not me. So, um, you know, I don't, I don't think I'd ever, you know, I wouldn't, I, I can't change. I don't want to change the way I do things, but, and I don't even want to, if he wants to do it the way he wants to do it, that's fine. You finished second to Del Jarrett in the championship standings in 1999, but you were 200 points down. Mm-hmm. What was your outlook going into 2000? Well, I, again, I, I think that with the addition of Tony in 99, uh, it helped, you know, our, elevate our whole program. Um, it thinned it out a little bit. Jimmy was getting, you know, pulled in different ways, uh, adding Greg, you know, but still his responsibilities were more. Um, but I knew that going to the two-car team, and obviously as fast as Tony was going to be, you know, just going to get better. Um, it stunk that we were down that far and in 99 but i can i can pinpoint you know one race for sure that we lost a lot that's that was my bad i mean i lost at at uh, sonoma going in the turn 11 you know i went to pass nemechek and drove right into the tires like okay you know had a really? could have had a well, good okay. finish yeah and, and kind of that was my you know we were we were then we were then striking distance to a point you know yeah. we were still going to be it's still going to take a lot but that was like <laughs> We were put ourselves down. Yeah. Uh, so saying that, I mean, when we ended the year, I'll never forget sitting in the banquet, you know, watching him on stage, and I'm just, I'm just angry, angry as could be, because I'm like, I want to be there, I want to be there, I want to be there. And as much as I love Dale Jarrett, admire him, and got his autograph when I was when he's racing a Grand National car, and I was racing late mile stock. I mean, he's my hero. But I'm like, and we were that close, you know, we were that, you know, we could, we were getting to be that good. Um, so. You know, I thought, I thought for sure 1999 was our better year. But then in 2000, I mean, I thought in 2000, we just, we really just didn't do anything wrong. You know, I didn't hit a set of tires. We didn't yeah. have anything go crazy. Yeah. I finished like umpteen laps, like like the record for laps finished. I mean, all but seven laps for the whole year. Or really? Like there's, a, there's a stat that's... That's crazy. It's, it's wow. like Mark, Mark yeah. Martin was before that at a certain amount, but I was, I think I finished all but seven, ten laps for the whole year. <laughs> like, it was just yeah. one of those things you just like, you're never going to finish out of the top ten, are you, or top fifteen? So saying that, I mean, we just, you know, between Earnhardt and I and, you know, um, I don't know who else, you know, Burton, I guess, or somebody was third, fourth. I mean, but I, I, you know, I mean, we were just like, my gosh, we were so fast, so consistent and just didn't have anything go wrong, you know, and with Tony there, I mean, just, it elevated our whole program. Yeah. So I kind of, I kind of felt like, you know, 99 was a, was that 2000 was our redemption year from 99 and my mistakes. Um, you know, we just, you know, we just missed it by a little bit and how do we improve? At Atlanta, Early that year, you finished door to door with Earnhardt, and he beat you officially mm-hmm. by, if I'm looking at the numbers correctly, ten one thousandths of a second. From the seat of your car, what are you thinking those last <laughs> couple of laps? Well, I I know that, um, you know, again, we had a fast car, and 
I think Skinner was the fastest car. He blew up with a few laps to go. So on the restart, we took off, and I mean, I'll run, you know, nearly wide open in three and four. I mean, back even back in those days, you run wide open, could run wide open. And um, so catching Earnhardt is one thing, but passing him is going to be something different. And you know, I caught him off a of turn two, going down the back straightaway, and you know, I got to his rear bumper, and I mean, I'm just like, all right. I mean, I love that fact because there's the intimidator, right? So he'd been running low, and I got to his rear bumper, and I'm like, all right, I don't know which way he's going to go, but wherever he goes, I'm going to go the opposite. So <laughs> yeah. he chose high because I was high the lap before, so I mean, what supposed to do? So I dove low and got to the white line and just, you know, he, he had to run off that corner, and, um, you know, I didn't, <clears throat> looking back at it, I, I wish I'd have moved up a little bit sooner and maybe a momentum would have carried me, but it just, you know, he had more momentum off the corner, and... I could not believe that I thought I thought we had him. I thought we really had him. And you know, it took a quarter of the lap for the to kind of get the radio ch- chatter down to you didn't win. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and then it was frustration, you know. <laughs> and uh but my gosh, I mean that was like I mean again, that was our year. I mean, we were just like that was almost like okay, take this snapshot. This is what it's going to look like the rest of the year. You two guys, you know, are going to be battling for the most part, you know, throughout and um and i think that that's um you know, that was kind of like okay here's what you're here's what you're going to do you know you're going to do this and it was um i and of course i blamed it on i think chevrolet that week before or that week they got an inch and a half extension on their front nose the the kick out was an inch and a half and i was like so i was i told him i said that's the only reason why you won is because you <laughs> had that because if you hadn't had that i probably would have beat you by that much you know but yeah that was uh that was just awesome to catch him going into three on the last lap going, all right, which way are you going to go? And we did it without wrecking each other. You know, we just, it was a good, good, clean race. Bobby, as good as the year 2000 was for you, it was also on the same hand, very difficult for the sport with the losses of Adam Petty and Kenny Irwin and Tony Roper. And there was just a furious debate over safety yep. the whole year. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it was – I remember that year, and, and it, it was a tough year yep. in, in general. Did you make any kind of changes to your car? Or what was your thinking during that time? Yeah, not not really. I mean, I think um, – um, I mean, we put we put the, the nets in the right side and left side of the car, you know, for your head. Um, and, I mean, then the, – you know, on top of three people getting killed there, there was a lot of people who got hurt. I mean, like, hurt bad. And whether it's a broken leg or, you know, things like that. And, I mean, you don't – I mean, I definitely didn't go home at night and go, this is scary. This is yeah. unsafe. This is that. This is this. And it was a um, – um, you know, I think what we did to our cars is just kind of do what you know. And we put the safety net on the right side. And we put one on the left side because the window net wasn't doing enough for us. And so there was a smaller net that we put up there that, that did that. Um, did you try the Hans? Nope, I didn't try Really? That. No, okay. I did not try that. I didn't probably, I, I did this, I, I can probably tell you, I didn't even know what it was okay. in 2000. I was not, right. I still had, when Adam died, you know, I was dumb enough or just naive enough that it was a carburetor. It wasn't a, you yeah. know, I just, you know, mentality. Yeah. I just wasn't thinking it was like he could have, survive if he had a Hans device, say. So um, I think we were working on our throttle cable, I think at that time, you know, where we got that off the drag racing, off of the top fuel car. 
coaches where we had a cable instead of a rod, you know, because that was what happened to him was an air cleaner, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then that still wasn't the, you know, fix all. We had a throttle hang wide open at Darlington, crashed uh, that year. So anyway, but no, I didn't. Yeah, I just, that was tough because, you know, we'd been at the racetrack or seen this happening when you're, when you're there, you know, Kenny Irwin, obviously we're at, at New Hampshire. I think Tony was at Texas, Texas in the truck race. We were there yeah. that weekend, I'm sure. No, no, we you were at Talladega. We were at Talladega. Okay. That was the night before Earnhardt won his last race. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So, but yeah, I mean, just, I mean, it was tough because I mean, this is our sport and our people. You know what I mean? It was definitely, you know, everybody. The series has been through things, and we were going through that at that time. You did not lead the championship standings from start to finish that year, but you were pretty doggone close. Mm-hmm. Um, at what point did you allow yourself to actually think that this might happen? Uh, you know, I'll be honest with you. I mean, I, I felt pretty good, you know, pretty early on. I don't want to be cocky about it, but I felt pretty good early on. I mean, I just – I just when you you got a feel for your race car and you, you, you know the competition and – you know where people are trying to, you know, catch up to you. I mean, I felt like we were just like we were just one step ahead. So early on, I felt like we were, you know, you have no idea, but I felt like we early on we, you know, bar anything disastrous, we're okay. We, you know, we're good enough. I mean, we were we were now good enough. We weren't yeah. quite good enough the year before, even though we, I thought we were, but we weren't. You know, this year we're in two thousand. We were I thought we were good enough pretty early on. You win the Bush Series championship, and that's pretty emotional. You win your first cup race, and that's pretty emotional. And then I think you actually clinched the championship in the year 2000 at Homestead with a race to go. What's it like to be at the top of the hill like that? Um, it was There, there are, are moments throughout the year that kind of I go back to, you know, I have to reflect back on a few things. And so a couple of those times to me is, um, or one was, at Indy at the Brickyard. Um, we were racing Rusty Wallace for the win. And we can't beat him, you know, uh, in a short run, but we can beat him in the long run. And I catch him, I pass him. Pitt, he out front, he pulls away. I finally kind of get on him. Um, so then at the end of it, I'm thinking, you know, I think I'd finished third, second, two years in a row. And... I'm catching him, and I'm like, um, I finally pass him, and you know, we all know I got by him, and ended up winning the race. And it's it's like you know, you you just know, you you have a gut feeling of how good you are, and how good you are at that time, and how good your team is. So um, that was like one of those checkmark things of like, you know, we're we're there. Um, I think Darlington for the Southern Five Hundred. In practice, I leave pit road, go make a qualifying run. I went down the back straightaway wide open. I get turned three, the throttle hangs wide open, hit the wall. I come down pit road, mm. crashed, yeah. or on the straightaway. Get out, get in the backup car, make a couple laps. I told Maycar, I said, I think I'm going to go to the infield care center just to make sure I'm okay. Because I'm not sure. So Earnhardt's sitting right behind, beside us. And they're all like all jacked up because they're like, oh, we got him this weekend. We ended up, we win the race. <laughs> okay. Through the most weirdest race of all, we won the race and he could have won it. And he, I led the last two laps under caution. He comes up, beat my back bumper off after the checker flag. 
and just <laughs> shaking his fist. And I'm like, yeah, yeah I know. Maria, I see that makes you mad. And uh, But those things, you know, lead up to when you get to Homestead. So as we're running good, Rockingham, we had a tire go down. We both finished about the same. But we go to Homestead, we've got a huge lead. All we had to do was finish like, I don't know, 20-something. And the Bernhardt wins, right? So we go out there, and I think we might have won the pole. Tony and I, we were first and second. And then I think I finished fourth, um, and Tony wins the race. If I'm not mistaken, I think that's how yeah. it worked. So anyway, and just, I mean, it's just like, it just all, you know, again, it's like people ask me, they said, hey, you know, have you got a lot of pressure on you? I was like, no. And I didn't realize I had pressure on me until after Homestead. Because of it. then it was like, yeah. I was relieved and I didn't realize yeah. I was just lying to everybody so bad because they're like, are you, you know, how much pressure do you have? I don't have any pressure. We're good. We're, I convinced myself there's no pressure here. We're fine. There's a ton of pressure. And, and when you, when you win, it's like, whew, it kinda, I can't believe that. I can't believe we did that. So it's just one of those, you know, it, it's uh, emotions of being able to, to get to that point. Just like amazing that we were so good all year and i mean just led all year or led most of the year and and finished it off with a race to go and we're just you know that that fast our car was just that fast that year and just you know when you've you, you when you know your car and you know your team that's just i mean you know you're that good and you, you're at the top of the heap it's always good when people always you know want to know where you're at in practice right you always yeah. want to know where yeah. you're at in practice and we were always that guy was on you know in the top five of the list it seemed like so there's no better feeling than that when you're able to do that. <laughs> yeah. So just put it that yeah. way. 2001 through 2003, you're still winning, still winning two or three races a year, a couple of races a year. Then in 2004, you're shut out of victory lane for the first time in 10 years. Was there ever a point where you went to Joe and said, I, I need some help? Or yeah, what was that period like <clears throat> at Joe Gibbs Racing? Yeah, for me, um, it was tough. I mean, because uh, Joe had gone back to football. Okay, yeah. You know, he'd, he'd done some football stuff. JD was there, uh, running the team. You know, Jimmy had moved on to a different role. Um, you know, we had a number of crew chiefs. You know, different, um, a couple of different crew chiefs, and um, just couldn't seem like to could find the mojo back to where we had it. You know, in two thousand, and I remember in. And, and, and I mean, you know, when Earnhardt died in 2001, I mean, that, I mean, that, you know, when you're supposed to walk into Daytona, which we did, you know, with your chest out and you go to, you know, the next right, rock and have your chest out. We're, you know, we're, we're defending champions. And then when Earnhardt died, that, you know, I was just like, yeah, miss. Yeah. I'm just, I'm not really sure, you know, I just didn't, just didn't have that much fun all of a sudden, you know, quickly. So. We went to Texas in 2001. I was like, we found, we blew up again. I was like, I don't think we're that good. <laughs> it took us a yeah, while to figure that yeah. out. I, was like, I don't think we're that good anymore. So anyway, it was a struggle. And, and I, I, you know, I mean, I point my finger at myself a lot for just like, you know, what, what could I have done differently to, okay, rebound this thing or turn it around or help be a part of something instead of it. But I think with Joe leaving and going back to football and just kind of that, I had that comfort. I had that, had that going for me and just, you know, Jimmy was, you know, my guy. And then when he was now, he's a more the manager. And I'm like, that. Ah, and it's, uh, you know, it's funny. I had Zippy would come over and he'd ask me a question. I'm like, dude, what? I can't, I can, why can't you ask me? Why can't you be my crew chief for a day, you know, or something? So it's just a lot of things were happening. And, you know, you want to have, um, 
um, yeah, you, you want to have that success. And it was just getting kind of hard. And so, um, you know, I wish now, I, looking back on it, I wish I could have done something differently. I'm not sure what I could have done. But, um, yeah, that was getting to be some tough times. And so finally when it came, uh, you know, I think we should probably dissolve this, you know, is when, when we did. How difficult was that? It was very difficult. I mean, in, in, in one hand, you wanted a new, fresh, something fresh because you want to be successful and you want to do good. And then the other hand, it's, it's, it's tough because you're not, uh, you're not doing um, as well as you think you should. So diff- difficult time. After that, you drove for a few different car owners. You drove for Petty Enterprises. You drove for Tad and Jody Geschichter mm-hmm. and Brad Doherty uh, and I guess a couple others. After being at the top of the heap, as I mentioned, for as long as you were, what were those years like for you? Yeah, that was, you know, it's, you know, going to the petties, you know, I was, I thought, I thought that was going to be, you know, when they put Robbie in there and, you know, I was, you know, this is, you know, this was a thing where you can, you, you can, like at Gibbs, we went there as a single car team racing against other teams and you you didn't win right away, but you you were able to help be a part of the organization that went from they'd won two races to now they win a championship, right? And so at the time, like the Petties, it was like okay, they're at this point, and they're you know, in in they're at this point today, and you believe in yourself, and you go okay, if I go over there and you put this person there, and you put Todd Parrott there, and you put so and so there, and you put you know a few people in the right places and you have influx of money that you can help build that to the next to what what you had experienced at Gibbs say for instance right because you take what you learn you take your life lessons you take your race lessons and racing knowledge and you hope to turn that into a winning you know formula as well and um, it seemed like that was going to it was kind of going the right way to the first for the first little bit and then it you know, then it was a, became more of a struggle and realization that we're, you know, we're not going to, we're only going to spend so much and we're not going to get any further. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it was like, yeah. how do you get past that? You know? Right. Yeah. And then, you know, and then at that, for me, you know, at that point in time, then you're like, in your, you're in your, you know, as, as that wasn't happening, time still passes. So, oh yeah. And you're, yeah. Then you can't, how do you get, how do you grab a hold of that? You know, but it, it happened to Terry when Rick called him. Right. I was actually the agent because he called. <laughs> I answered the phone when they called. Hey, did you speak to your brother? I think we're going to get him right. I was like, Terry, you got to do this. But, uh, so, but yeah. for me, that wasn't, there wasn't the Rick Hendrick that said, hey, come drive my car because we believe in you and you're going to die. It was at that point in time, it was like pickings were slim. You know, you're looking throughout the garage. It's like, uh, 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 you know, things were, you know, your, your chess, you're losing at your chess game. Did you get caught maybe in the rust of the young guns? so to speak, because um, obviously you did not forget how to drive a race car. Right. You, you don't do that. No. No, I think that um, – I don't think it was a young gun thing. I mean, I remember when I came in, Ernie Irvin said, I hate you because you're going to take my job one day. You know, I'm just kidding yeah. around because I was younger than him. So I don't think I got – I don't think I was in flux at that point in time. I mean, it, it wasn't that – seemed like that big a deal until later. 2014, 15, 16, you just run three or four races a year, mostly at Daytona and Talladega, kind of like what Terry did mm-hmm. at the end of his career. Was that just for fun? Um, or were you still 
trying to maybe get on with a more established team. Well, I knew that that candle was getting dimmer, right? Right. As far as career goes, you know, I, I mean, I was still doing things behind the scenes that, you know, I could probably tell you about now, but at the time I couldn't tell you about. Um, as far as um, working and uh, testing and stuff like that um, for different teams, or for well, actually more for one team, but um, so I was being busy doing stuff in cars minus those four. And, you know, there wasn't, I mean, you know, it's, you know, it's just like your paper here. It's like, yep, that's, that's on, it's printed and it's for sure. This is, this is really what it is. So my opportunity with Josh Comstock and, and Archie and, and Frankie were to drive that, you know, they asked me if I'd drive their car. It's good for them. It was good for me to kind of, you know, and I mean, sure. There was a point in time. It's like, I want to run every race. And then after I didn't run all the races, I went, and I, I had I had a couple offers, you know, that were not, you know, they were not going to be winning cars, of course. Right. It was like, hey, do you want to drive a car? I was like, hey, I'm really kind of enjoying a couple weekends off here and there. <laughs> I don't yeah. think I want to do that. I don't, yeah. Why should I go to Atlanta and beat my head against the wall, right? So it kind of evolved into doing that stuff for Archie. And then when Josh passed away, Comstock passed away, you know, I knew that that was, you know, that was like, okay, this is not going to keep going because he sponsored the car. He's a friend of ours from Texas and he helped Archie out. I mean, you think of Archie, if he hadn't, you know, things like that, if maybe I, Terry and I had a little influence on what Archie's at today, getting, you know, his deal was, you know, SHR small granular, of course, Yeah. Josh Comstock did as well, along with a lot of other people that kind of helped keep him in the sport to the point now where he's got a, a different opportunity than what he had if, if say, well, I can't go to Daytona this year because I don't have enough money or Speedway, you know, is out of the picture. So for him to pers- stay there and for us to have that little fun time with him, you know, help, hopefully has been something that he's uh, been able to reap. But for me, it was, you know, I, I don't know it was fun. It was, you know, still racing racing, and I loved it. I love it. But at the same time, I knew that there wasn't like, I mean, God forbid, unless something happened to somebody and yeah. Coach Gibbs says, hey, can you do this for us? Or, you know, like David Reagan did when Kyle got hurt or yeah. somebody, you know, it's like, okay, you know, you're, you know where you're at. So you just kind of, you can do what you do what you can. 17 and 18, what was it like being on the sidelines and not driving? Was that a difficult adjustment for you? Um, was that the last two years, three? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was, wasn't it? Yeah. 17 <laughs> it seemed like it's gone by pretty fast. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the, um, yeah, I mean, it was. And, um, you know, so I, I mean, I, I wasn't out of a race car. I still got to do a little bit of something here and there, but you know, so it's not like as I far was, as testing. Uh, well, I raced in Europe last year. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. And okay. I did once in seventeen, and did once this year. So, um, so at least I wasn't. You know, I was always. Right. You know, I was kind of still doing something, and um, I wasn't doing the testing stuff as much, of course. But you know, and then the the deal with Fox came about, and so you know, I'm. It's like. I'll be honest with you. I was like, how in the world did I get stuff done before? I am busier now than ever. <laughs> and it's yeah. like, what in the world yeah. am I doing? So between the Fox stuff last year and going to Europe <clears throat> and all that, I mean, that was, I mean, I love what I'm doing. I'm staying busy because I know that I can't do it. I can't do that again. But what I'm doing right now at this point is really exciting. It's really good. And I enjoy that. Uh, but trust me, you know, the first race that I didn't go to, um, that I was supposed to go to and I didn't go to and I wasn't hurt. I mean, I was like, wow, this is, this stinks, you know? And, but then again, later, and Terry told me, he said, 
it's gonna it's, it'll it'll stink for a while. But he said, then you'll you'll come about later and you'll go. Man, I got more friends than I ever thought I would. You know, <laughs> yeah. and then you know it's like yeah, and they really didn't care much about racing anyway. They just wanted to be your friend. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, so anyway, yeah, I had yeah. a coach to help me through this. So it's yes. I mean, I want to. I'd rather I'd rather drive a race car than anything out there. But I also enjoy doing doing different things. Last question. Um, <laughs> Tell me about running Bowman Gray this year, man. Those guys don't play Mm-mm. out there. And I would imagine, to be honest with you, if I'm at Bowman Gray and I'm beating around there and I've got my little modified and I'm wanting to make a name for myself and I got a shot at Bobby Labonte, I'm going to take a shot at Bobby Labonte. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you experience what, – what went on at Bowman Gray? Um, well, to be honest with you, um, my friend Chris Williams – driving a modified up there and i'm like he said hey can you come up here and help me one day i was like sure so my wife she's at school uh, on a saturday doing school stuff and so i was all right so i went up there i paid five dollars to get in <laughs> they, so I, they charged you they charged yeah five dollars <laughs> so i paid my five dollars yeah. big gate walked yeah. in there yeah so i helped chris i was like he's, he's you want to drive it i said all right i'll drive so i run about 10 or 15 laps i was like wow that's pretty good so we you know i talked to him a little bit and you know told him what i thought and he watched me, and I watched him. He said, you coming back tonight? I said, mm, probably not. Yeah, I probably won't come back tonight. I'm only 11 miles away. So I go home. I was like, well, you know, I got through eating dinner. I might go back up there. You got the bug. So I paid <laughs> $20 to get in. Pit pass, I think it's 20 or $25. Yeah. I saw three fights and a heck of a race, and I went, <laughs> that's the best money I've spent in a long time. So then I went back three, three, about two or three more times, watched, yeah. watched and... Eddie Wood was up there one night, and, you know, we were just watching from the grandstands. And so I went back one night and practiced, or one day and practiced again. So I made a deal with Burt Myers and Jason Myers, you know, to drive one of their cars. And so, you know, we did that. I did that. And uh, I'm telling you what, I was like, I ain't qualified a car a long time. You know, it's like, well, we got one lap qualifying. This is going to be good, right? So I was watching Robert Jeffries run um, and, um, you know, watch Tim Brown, Danny Bone, Obviously, Jason and Bert and Frank Fleming. I remember, God, Frank Fleming from back racing my late model. Um, yeah, and just, you know, uh, was it Randy Butner? Um, know him. So I knew, I knew a lot of people up there. So anyway, when I qualified and ran, you know, qualified eighth. And we had, it was a big night for us because my best friend passed away the week before that. So had his kids up there and some other friends and family, and there, we just had a good time. I mean, that was fun. So anyway, it was, it's, it's, it's amazing. It's awesome. Yeah, I mean that's fifteen thousand people in the grandstands. Yes, and you can see them. Yeah, I mean you can see their fingers, yeah. you can see their yeah. fists, or you can see their shirts or no shirts. <laughs> you can see it all. And I know one guy told me he said he smelled. He had beer poured on him. He he was somebody threw beer on him. Like he's on the track and they threw beer from the beer section, and he smelled like beer afterwards. I mean you know it was yeah. just like that was yeah. a pretty funny story. I was like yeah. whoa. But anyway, I I I enjoyed it. Um, I thought it was great. Um, I'm. Looking forward to going back this year and doing it again because, I mean, it's just like, you know, you know I, I never drove a modified in my life. I worked at Jay Hedgecock's for a year, looked at him, I'm like, why are you doing that? I want to run a stock car. But anyway, it was just a lot of fun, and I'm glad I did it, and I want to do it again. Happy holidays, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Scene Vault podcast. This is Eric Quinn, the general manager at QWare. 
At QWare, we are extremely excited to be involved with the Scene Vault podcast and everything that Rick and Steve are doing to preserve the history of NASCAR. At QWare, that's what we do. We help you and your business take care of the stuff that you own. If you'd like to know more about QWare and what we can do for your business, head over to QWareCMMS.com. That's QWareCMMS.com. From all of us at QWare, thank you for listening, and we hope you have the happiest of holidays, the merriest of Christmases, and we hope that 2020 is the best year you've ever had. So Steve, Bobby Labonte talked in this segment of the interview that I did with him. <laughs> he talked about Tony Stewart coming on board as his teammate at Joe Gibbs Racing beginning in 1999. And two things really stood out to me about, <laughs> uh-huh. about what he said. Number one, he said that in essence, Tony was a good guy behind the scenes. That's somebody that some of us in the media didn't exactly get to see something. Well, I agree with that. And I also agree that Tony was a good guy behind the scenes. Because I've dealt with him behind the scenes, and I can tell you, yeah, he's a racer. He's very competitive, and okay, I'll go in line and say that he probably had some anger management issues in, early in his career. But when you got to know him a little bit, and he got to the point where he was comfortable with you, he was a different person. The second thing that kind of stood out about what <laughs> about what Bobby was saying was, it was very apparent that Bobby was trying his best to not say anything that he shouldn't. You well, know, he was trying to play it I, pretty straight. I can understand that. And then, Steve, another thing that really kind of jumped out at me about this interview, he finished second to Dale Jarrett for the 1999 Winston Cup Championship, and he talked about sitting at the banquet watching DJ accept all of his accolades. Okay. And <laughs> he said that he was very angry really yeah and because he wanted to be on stage <laughs> you know he had chased dj all year and he talked last week about the relationship that he had with dj and them trading information and right when dj was going to be leaving joe gibbs to go to robert yates and dj was helping him trying to open the door a little bit get his foot in the door with joe gibbs and all that and bobby said that they talked every day about what was going on and what they could do to get the rides that they wanted. But 1999 Winston Cup Championship Banquet, uh, it's a different story. Yeah. You know, I don't know that he's necessarily mad at DJ. I think he was just mad at the fact that he had come up short. Right. He was frustrated. I think that's the way to put it. Bobby actually said that he had gotten Dale's autograph back when DJ was in the Bush Series and Bobby was running late models. So I don't think it was, again, I don't think it was anything, no, there was anything personal. in their relationship. It's, it's not personal. Yeah, it wasn't personal. No, it's, it's professional more or less. Because when they get on the track, let's face it, things are a whole lot different than they are off the track. Friends are friends away from the racetrack. But on the racetrack, I don't know that you race a friend maybe a little bit harder. You see that a lot. So the year 2000 rolls around and Bobby Labonte is on point. Is he ever. Steve, he finished sixth in the Daytona 500 that year. He dominates at Rockingham the next week and wins which moved him up to second in the point standings. He goes to the top of the standings after Las Vegas, which was the third race of the year. And Steve, that's where he stayed for the rest of the year. With the exception of just one week after the first Talladega race, where he dropped to second behind Mark Martin. 
It was his year. No two ways. Oh, it was it. his yeah. year. I mean, they might as well have written him the check, <laughs> you know, sometime around July or so. Yeah. But he won four races, including the Brickyard 400 and the Southern 500. Steve, here's the one that kind of blows yeah. my mind. He finished all but seven laps. How about that? Seven laps the entire year. And he won the championship by 265 points over Dale Earnhardt. Now, that is consistency, and that <laughs> consistency is exactly what winning the championship by that point system was all about. Over the course – never mind, I'm not going to go. <laughs> <laughs> he won it over the course of the full season, and, yes, he clinched it with a race to go, but that was his championship, and he absolutely deserved it. Earned it. Earned it. And at Darlington, the Southern 500. There's more to that story than just a number in the win column. Right. He goes out and practice to make a qualifying run. He gets up to speed going into turn three. And Steve, the throttle hangs wide open, and he plows into the wall. And that's the very same thing that had happened to Adam Petty and Kenny Irwin earlier that year. So that was a pretty yeah, big story at that absolutely. time. Absolutely. It happened to Adam and Kenny at uh, New Hampshire and tragic results. He told Jimmy Maycar. He said, I, I think I'd better go to the infield care center just to be sure. And, of course, he goes on to win the race, which was the big story. <laughs> Bobby said that Dale Earnhardt's team was like, yeah, we, we got him now. You yeah. know, they, they saw Bobby being kind of ginger around the race car, kind of banged up a little bit. They thought that they might be able to. Only natural for him to feel that way. But Bobby goes on to win the race. Yeah. Then Bobby talked about winning the Winston Cup championship, which was obviously the highlight of mm -hmm. his career. He was the only driver ever to win both the Bush Series championship and the Winston Cup championship. He and Terry are the only brothers to have won the championship. Yes, I believe so. Is that right? Yeah. I think okay. So. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's the case. And then he goes to Daytona the next year, kind of walking tall. Got his chest bowed out a little bit. As he should. And... Everything happens on the last lap of the 2001 Daytona 500. And, and Steve, Bobby actually made the comment that that took a lot of the fun away from defending his Winston Cup championship. Well, that is certainly understandable. And Bobby was not the only driver to feel that way. And I might add, uh, a whole lot of fans felt that way too. Big Earnhardt fans just had the wind knocked out of them. Well, I think what happened was the questions changed from, hey, Bobby, what's it like to defend your Winston Cup championship? How do you think your season's going? There were still those kinds of questions, but always, 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 always that year, there were going to be questions about Dell Earnhardt, questions about safety, questions about the Hans device, soft walls, whatever. Yeah. All those subjects that you just mentioned took precedence over almost everything else. Steve Bobby eventually left Joe Gibbs Racing after the 2005 season. And after that, he kind of bounced around a little bit. He yeah. did some time with Petty Enterprises. And JTG. JTG Doherty Racing with right. Tad and Jody. And then he did some testing for a team or two. And then, Steve, he, he kind of got to a place where he actually enjoyed having a weekend off every now and then rather than having to go to the racetrack and beating his head against the wall, not being as competitive as he once had been. Yeah, I can understand that because I think many drivers reach a point in their career where they think, hey, this is crazy. I, I'm never home. Uh, I'm always worried about how I'm running. I don't need this grief. Right. And take a different turn. 
So 2019, he goes to Bowman Gray Stadium to kind of hang out with a buddy of his. And then the buddy of his kind of says, hey, do you want to come back to the racetrack? And then the bug kind of hits, and he winds up borrowing a car to run a modified race or two at Bowman Gray Stadium. He took leave of his senses. (laughs) Now, Steve, I'm going to tell you what's the truth. Fans at Bowman Gray Stadium, they take their racing very serious. Oh, yes. Serious. Now, let me ask you this. What is another just overwhelming piece of trivia about Bowman Gray Stadium? Well, I can tell you this. I've only been there one time. Really? That's right. I never had the opportunity to go except for this one time. But I think one legend about Bowman Gray that I think is pretty interesting is that there was a young, young man there at one time who had a job of selling peanuts at (laughs) Bowman Gray Stadium and dreaming about being a race driver. Well, he became a race driver, and then he became a team owner, and then he became a championship Let's see. What's that guy's name? You can come up with now. I know you can think of it. Richard, uh, let's see, Childress. Children, Childress. (laughs) (laughs) R.C. himself. Yeah, Richard Childress got his start selling peanuts and popcorn there. But that's not the piece of trivia that I was looking for. Okay, what were you looking for? Yours truly. Oh, no, I wasn't looking for that one either. Rick Houston, one summer, drove the pace car at Bowman Gray Stadium. Now that, I got to tell you, was a highlight of my career. Well, the fact of the matter is, Greg Garrison, who is the promoter there, and Bowman Gray has been in his family since it began. Mm-hmm. His grandfather was Alvin Hawkins, who basically right. opened the place. Right. And Gray Garrison went to church with me. Obviously, I had asked Gray about driving the pace car a time or two. And the year before, he had actually let me drive it a couple of races. And I rode with the regular pace car driver, Mike Norman, for one of the races that night. And then we switched seats, and I drove, and Mike rode shotgun. And then for the finale... The modified races, he got out of the car and said, I'm going to beat traffic. I'll see you later. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm driving the car solo. My very first night ever being in the pace car. So that was a blast. But then the next year, I got to drive it probably five or six Saturday nights because Mike Norman actually raced a modified. And the nights that he would race, they would call on me to drive the pace car. So, yeah. You talk about some experiences. All right. <laughs> I got to tell this one story. There was one night the track would get VIPs to come in and ride in the pace car. And there was this one night where it was a mom and her daughter. Okay. And mom was probably in her 50s or so. And the daughter was probably in her 20s, somewhere in there. Mom wasn't feeling any pain. <laughs> How do you mean that? <laughs> mom, mom was lit. <laughs> okay. okay. Glad you got to the point. All right. So, and it was at a time of year when the dew sat on the grass pretty early at night. They called a caution and I gunned the pace car, which was a brand new Camaro. So it had a little bit of horsepower. Well, I gunned the pace car out from where it sat. And when those tires... <laughs> 
hit the dew on that grass, man. I did a full-on Dukes of Hazard slide <laughs> through the infield as I was trying to get onto the racetrack. And Mama, the whole time, is just, <laughs> So that was one incident. And then another time, they called a caution, and I got to where I was going to enter the racetrack and got on the racetrack. And I looked in the rearview mirror, and evidently, at least some of the drivers had not gotten the word that there was a caution. Uh-oh. And they were bearing down on me pretty hard. Okay, so that was <laughs> that was interesting. I'll bet. But again, I've said it before on the show, the pace car driver is the coolest job in racing. Oh, that was such a cool summer. And finally, Steve, the NASCAR Hall of Fame induction ceremony here in a few weeks. Joe Gibbs Racing is going to be well represented oh, is it with ever? Joe Gibbs, yeah. with Tony Stewart, and with Bobby Labonte. I don't know of any other induction class where any one team has been so yeah. well represented. I don't think so. And certainly Penny Enterprises has several members in, but they were in different years. Right. Yeah, it's going to be a big, big night for that organization. Yeah, and uh, joining uh, the Gibbs organization will be uh, Buddy Baker. The late Buddy Baker and Waddell Wilson, who's been on the show with us. Yes, Waddell Wilson. So, yeah, that's going to be a great night. What does it say about Joe Gibbs Racing that they have been able to produce such a phenomenal success? It says a lot about their talent. No question about it. But it also says a lot about Joe's leadership. Part of being a leader is to acquire the best people to work around you and for you and with you. I think that's a big, big plus for Joe Gibbs. Been in coaching all his life. He knows how to handle people, and he knows how to recognize their talents and put them to good use. That's what he's done and still doing to this day because Joe Gibbs Racing is still one of the best organizations in NASCAR to this day. I think certainly that's something that he dealt with when he was a coach. No question. In the NFL, because when you have that many people on a roster, you're going to have a very, very, very wide array of personalities, of, personalities, yeah. of backgrounds, of economic backgrounds, of upbringings, of colleges, and all those different stories. You got to figure out a way to make all those get headed in the right direction. Right. And, and he brought that to NASCAR. Yeah. You know, because that. certainly he's had drivers. Tony Stewart and Kyle Busch and Denny Hamlin and who all ever else. You're talking about a wide range of personalities yeah. there. Yeah, and whether they're good, bad, or indifferent, and whether fans like them or not, you still got to have the right chemistry. Correct. And he's been able to find that for a lot of years now. Steve, follow Brian Kelb on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens and check out his inventory at SpeedwayTSJ.Etsy.com. And again, this week, we had some exchanges between some of our Twitter followers and Brian asking about some of the products that he had. I think he posted some Davy Allison t-shirts and some Davy Allison paraphernalia and some different t-shirts. Yeah, remarkable kind of thing. inventory. Yeah, remarkable inventory. So again, I believe that this deal is working out for Brian, certainly worked out for us. So again, follow Brian on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens and check out his inventory at SpeedwayTSJ.Etsy.com.
Okay, Steve, John K. Osborne at John K. Osborne one on Twitter asked, what driver did each of you personally dislike, <laughs> but you had oh, no. to cover them anyway? <laughs> and then our second question was, <laughs> <laughs> okay, and you and I have talked about necessarily how to tactfully answer that question. And I'm going to say this. I don't know that there was any one driver or personality in the sport, crew chief, car owner, whatever, I don't know that there was any one person in the sport that I actually got to spend some time with and got to know away from the racetrack that I didn't like. That's somewhat of a difficult question to answer because, like you, the drivers that I got to know, and I got to know plenty of them over yes, the years. Yes, you and I both were, did. Were very hard to dislike. Yeah. I mean, personally dislike. Yes, they. some of them, they made our lives Hell, when it came to trying to get interviews, <laughs> uh, either you didn't have the time for you or they brush you off, and you might say, well, I just don't like that guy because he just brushed me off. Well, he maybe he had a reason. We've talked a lot about Tony Stewart. Yeah. Well, he's a perfect example yeah. of what yeah. I'm talking about. Yeah. Uh, I had my difficulties with him professionally, and one day at Sonoma, in the back of his hauler, we decided we were going to have it out. Tony's real problem was a story that was published in scene, yeah. written by Jeff Owens, yeah. a true professional, yeah. in which Tony complained about being in NASCAR. Yeah. No time to himself, didn't like being bothered by the fans, and of course he did later tried to deny all of that. And that was the issue that we had, basically between the paper and between Tony and, of course, myself included. So we decided to have it out in the back of the hall, and we talked and talked, and exchanged views, and after that, I had a much different view of Tony, even when he did things at the track that were totally uncalled for. Uh, I still had a different view of him. So even with Tony Stewart, who I think is one of the drivers that most people think the press doesn't want to have anything to do with over the years, uh, even with him, when I got to know him, it was a different view. And I found that to be true with so many drivers. Yes, sir. Yeah. Even Kyle Busch. Yeah. You know, I've gone to his face and said, you like to wear the black hat. You're the villain, aren't you? And he said, in so many words, I'm loving every minute of it. <laughs> <laughs> when it comes to Tony, again, I didn't get the chance to know him personally. When he first broke into the division and was making some starts in the Bush series, his PR team at Joe Gibbs Racing, they put together a media dinner at Dover one year yeah. and we went to dinner, but there were several media members there and I sat kind of down the table from him. And <laughs> that was actually a race that my wife, Jeannie went to, and she went to that dinner with me. And so she's talking to the guy across the table and <laughs> we drove away from that dinner that night. And she said, well, Tony Stewart's a great guy. I really enjoyed talking to him. And I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> Tony Stewart was sitting at the end of the table. She thought that Tim Sullivan, oh. <laughs> who was working with NASCAR PR at the time, she thought that Tim Sullivan was Tony Stewart. <laughs> but there were other media members sitting closer to him, and there was one in particular who kind of who kind of dominated the conversation that ah, night. You know, I guess so, I know who that is. <laughs> uh, so I didn't get the chance to know Tony, and there were two or three times where I tried to get up with him after a race, after a cup race, when I was doing a sidebar on him and it didn't go well. Right. Yeah. I, I remember one time in his truck, he kind of, uh, 
he he made a he made a comment or two about my size. Oh, yeah, and I will say this: I don't know that anybody in that sport has been as pure a racer mm-hmm. as what Tony Stewart is. To be honest with you, I got the impression from Tony that if he had been able to strap into his race car, put his helmet on, run the race, get the checkered flag, then go to his motor coach and walk away from the racetrack and never deal with the media, (laughs) he would have been perfectly content. I think so, too. Now, I will also say this in his defense. Again, I didn't get to know him personally. Those that do know him personally say the same thing. They say that he is a wonderful guy right. and has a heart of gold. Well, I hope this answers the question. Both of us, I think, gave the same answer, which is it's very hard to dislike drivers that you know personally. Yes. It's not all that hard when it's just on a professional level. And we brought up Tony's name, I guess, because he's the obvious target here yeah uh but others have been the same way we've mentioned kyle bush and there are a few others now i'd like to reverse the question which i get asked a lot over the years who is my favorite driver and again when you know them personally that's a very difficult question to ask absolutely but when we go professionally it's a little bit easier my way of thinking about my favorite driver speaking professionally is the one that takes time to talk to you. He doesn't give me a hard time exactly. about trying to talk to him. And gives you yeah. good, solid answers. Yes. Not just yes or no. We've talked also about Dell Earnhardt several times on this show and the relationship that you had with him and the relationship that I had with him, which wasn't much. <laughs> I remember one time it was after the 600 at Charlotte and I had been assigned the Dell Earnhardt sidebar. And I've got to tell you, it wasn't because I didn't like him. Of course, I respected his achievements. But after a race, Dell Earnhardt did not make it easy on reporters to talk to him. Absolutely not. And he came out of that trailer, and he and Richard Childress got on their golf cart, and J.R. Rhodes was driving the golf cart, and Earnhardt looked at me dead in the eye. And in that moment, the look in his face said, what do you got? Make it quick. Yeah. And I froze. Oh, I froze in that moment, and when I froze, the golf cart took off. Took off, yeah. If I had had my wits about me, I would have jumped on the golf cart with them. I have actually interviewed Dale on a dead run from the garage area. I can't stand that. To his car parked outside the garage area. He answered all my questions. No problem with that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, those walk and talks got kind of dangerous at times because at Richmond one year, we were doing the walk and talk with Rusty Wallace, and there was a camera guy kind of walking backwards filming the whole thing. And as we entered the garage, the cameraman <laughs> fell over. <laughs> right. It was like a 10 car pileup. Right. <laughs> well, we so. all fell over him, basically. <laughs> Steve, the next question that we had comes from Jeff Markoski at the underscore NASCAR Jeff on Twitter. (laughs) And he wanted to know how big of a cluster was the Tabasco fiasco? Oh, boy. Woohoo! How much time do you have? (laughs) (laughs) Well, Steve, here is what I was able to glean in a nutshell. There was a ton of hype going into the 1998 season with a new team owned by Bob Hancher called International Sports Management. That was the name of the race team. Todd Bodine was going to be the driver, and, of course, Tabasco 
was going to be the sponsor. And this was a pretty good sponsorship. This was, of yeah. course, a very well-known company, had been around for a long time. And <laughs> there were models made of Todd's car. There were die casts made of his car. There was a Todd Bodine cookbook. Yeah, I saw that. <laughs> I wonder if Brian Kelvin could come up with one of those. <laughs> a Todd Bodine cookbook. And Steve, there was a ton, a ton, a ton of marketing that went into that operation. But evidently, there wasn't a whole lot of attention paid to the actual nuts and bolts. There, the there, therein was the problem. The performance on the track was just pitiful. And that said a lot about how the team was running when it came to competition. Marketing was fine, but marketing doesn't win races. The fact of the matter is, Todd Bodine can drive a race car. Right. He is a good shooter. I believe that Todd could have held his own against either of his brothers. I think that's a fair statement. On the racetrack. So he could drive a race car. There's no doubt about that. But he did fail to qualify for the season's first three races. They didn't have points to fall back right, on. right. And then he he qualified second and finished 10th in Atlanta, but then he started to miss more races. Yeah, and that's that's a real shame because you have this fine sponsor coming in yes. in Tabasco, a product yeah. that everybody knows, and they are pouring all kinds of money into it, and they're doing what a good sponsor should do. A good sponsor never just gives the team a check and stands around, backs it up with marketing and advertising to gain the necessary attention they really need. And that's what Tabasco was doing. But the results, they were so bad that, all right, the Tabasco team became a joke. That's the only way I can put it. Yeah. And Darrell Walter's team had kind of run its course, and Western Auto had gone away, and then he was having some trouble with some subsequent sponsors. Tim Beverly wound up buying Darrell Waltrip's team, renamed it Tyler Jet Motorsports. And then Tim Beverly also bought the Tabasco-sponsored car from Hatcher. And so maybe this was going to be the turnaround. You would think so. That that team needed. Ah, well, no. <laughs> DW had found some success driving the number one Penzoil car for Della Earnhardt Incorporated. But then once Steve Park came back from his injuries, Daryl was right back in a pretty bad situation with Tyler Jett and with the Tabasco car. And uh, Steve, he took 13 champions provisionals in 15 starts. That's, that was just, that was sad. That was sad. In 15 starts. So. And again, uh, I want to stress that the so-called Tabasco fiasco was not based on Tabasco. It was based on team performance. And to see Daryl take 13, champions perennials in 15 races it was sad at first and then it became ludicrous so that that reflected very poorly and unfairly on tabasco the moral of the story is that tabasco was a decent sponsor they pretty much got driven out of the sport by a team that literally wasn't up to speed the sponsor is important but everything has to be in order absolutely We've already mentioned this many times. When it came to marketing, Tabasco was right on target. And offering the money it took to be competitive, they were right on target. But their competitive results were just awful. And that just did not reflect very well on Tabasco, which was gone after that one year. So I have a question. When you work in racing like we did for so long, you accumulate a lot of stuff. 
And one person's trash winds up being another person's treasure. True. And I kind of have a story to tell about Milt Heflin, who was my co-author on the Mission Control book. I went to Milt's house while we were writing the book and everything and visited his office. And he had a lot of knickknacks from his time at NASA, had a lot of souvenirs and that kind of thing. Well, on top of his bookshelf was a contractor's model of the Hubble Space Telescope. And it's probably maybe 18 inches tall. It's a pretty good-sized model. On the outside of it, it had where all the lines, the power lines were located and all that. It had the solar arrays. You opened up the top of it, and there's actually a mirror inside for the telescope and all that. Well, I thought it was pretty cool, but it was sitting on top of Milt's shelf. It had been sitting there for probably 25 years since he was the flight director for the mission that serviced the Hubble Space Telescope. And I went out to my car and I checked on eBay. I was going to see if I could get one because I just thought it was neat. (laughs) Steve, I found one auction where this very same contractor's model had been auctioned. (laughs) (laughs) $16,000. And I immediately took a screen capture of that and I sent it back to Mill. He was still not impressed. It was just something that he had had for years and years and years collecting dust on his bookshelf. And so now every once in a while, he will send me a picture of his model. He took it out to his garage, his unheated, unair conditioned garage, his junk garage and all that. So it was out there for a little while. He actually hung it on his bird feeder. (laughs) Just, I guess, just to give me a heart attack. (laughs) So Milt has a lot of NASA stuff. You and I have a lot of NASCAR stuff. Right. Of all the stuff that you have, what would you consider to be your most treasured memento well, of your actually, time? Well, I have racing? two. Okay. And it's probably going to surprise you a little bit. I have a framed $5 bill that was my payment given to me by David Pearson after we had a bet. Really? He, he wow. gave me the $5. Okay. And then yeah. he signed it. But what he wrote was the following. I did not lose this. He cheated. (laughs) Well, you opened the door. What was the bet? I cannot remember. (laughs) Can you not remember or can you not tell on a family-oriented show? (laughs) I plead the fifth. Now, the other one I've got is going to be a little bit unusual. It is a cigarette ashtray. Trimmed in gold, porcelain trimmed in gold. And in the center of it is a painting of Buddy Baker's 1973 Ford Gran Torino that he drove for Bud Moore. Wow. Okay. It's never had anything put in it at all. It's in pristine shape. And I've been offered $1,000 for it. Have you really? Yeah. Wow. But I don't know of anybody who can come up with that same asterisk. <laughs> anywhere. So as hard as it is to believe, an ashtray leaves the pack. Okay, so you and I have done a lot of joking about your tracks rookie card and offering them to our Patreon supporters and it being an official rookie card. In your garage are hanging two uncut sheets of right. that entire set. Mm-hmm. Now, I got to tell you, if I were you, those cards would be kind of at the top of the heap. They are. They are right up there. I'm very, very proud of having those two uncut sheets of cards. And there was a time when I would thought that they would put my kids through college. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a different story. But that didn't happen. 
<laughs> That's a different story. All right, Rick, I've gone through my list. What are your most prized NASCAR possessions? Well, obviously, there's the scene vault itself in all those newspapers. True. 32 years of newspapers, every issue of scene ever. That would obviously be my biggest yeah, memento. But I had the chance to go and cover the very first exhibition race in Japan. That was a momentous trip. Yeah, I remember that. That was an amazing adventure. And when we got over there, of course, everything happened with Elmo, and that was very sad. And then some different things happened while we were over there. But I went into one of the gift shops outside the racetrack, and I bought a couple of Sam Bass prints right. for that race. Sure. <laughs> From what I remember, they were marked at what would amount to be $30 each. Right. But from what I understand, they were supposed to be marked at what would have been $300. Oh. So I got them for a pretty good price. So I got the two prints, and I took them around the garage and got every driver in the field to sign them. As a reporter, as a journalist, you're not supposed to get autographs. That's normally taboo. But that far away from home and being in that kind of situation and staying at the same hotel, it just had a different feel. Right. So I got every driver in the field to sign that print. And to this day, one of those prints is hanging in my den. Huh. That is really, really something. So, uh, you know, Dale Earnhardt's on that, Terry Labonte, Jeff Gordon, Rusty Wallace, who won the race. All the Japanese drivers, one actually signed in Japanese, which was kind of cool. So, yeah, that's my memento of my time in racing. Hi, I'm Kirk Shelmerdine, and you're listening to the Scene Vault Podcast. Y'all be careful going home. Use your turn signal, wear your seatbelts, and get the hell out of the left lane! <laughs> Steve, we have another review on iTunes from D Burke 2006. And this was a really good one as well. Okay. I just found this podcast about a month or so back. I had listened to the Dell Jr. episodes through a link on his Twitter. I can say I am almost 100% caught up. You guys are awesome. I have been a NASCAR fan since 1997 and have not missed a single race since. I love the history of the sport and can never hear or learn enough. Most of the guys you have interviewed have been wild and crazier than I would have ever imagined. Like the Buddy Parrott interview. That may have been my favorite. I look forward to years of stories and history to come. Keep up the great work, guys. I've got a challenge for you. Get Kale and DW on the show next year. Boy, that is a challenge. <laughs> Happy holidays. I think it would be awesome if we got Kale and DW on at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> that would be in uh, our show. <laughs> or a 30-second show. <laughs> One or the other. Again, thank you so much for these kind reviews. They help a lot. Obviously, it's nice to hear kind words and good words about what you're doing, encouragement about what you're doing, but it also helps on iTunes to get placement and encourage other people to listen. So if you can, please leave us a five-star rating and a written review on iTunes. It does help. Once we get to 100 written reviews 
we will give away a copy of every NASCAR book that I have ever written and every NASCAR book that you have ever written. It'll make for a very good library, I tell it you It will that. make for a very good library. And Steve's, of course, did go into six printings. <laughs> you remembered. I, how can I forget? <laughs> and again, listeners, this will be our final episode of the year. We will not release an episode on Christmas Day or on New Year's Day, but we will be back on January 8th with a pretty cool review yeah. of what we've done in 2019. And until that time, we really want to wish all of our listeners a very, very happy holiday season, and thank you for being with us. Merry Christmas, everybody.